Welcome to Culture Matters, a podcast exploring the intersection of faith and culture. I'm Adam Hawkins, and today I'm really excited to have a conversation with Scott Sauls about his new book, Beautiful People Don't Just Happen, How God Redeems Regret, Hurt, and Fear in the Making of Better Humans. Scott's senior pastor of Christ Presbyterian in Nashville. He's an author of several wonderful books. He's a church planner, and uh, I am just so grateful to get to talk with him today. So let's jump right in. Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. It's really an honor to have you here. I got to talk off air. I've been an admirer from afar for a long time. I have been, uh, I've benefited greatly from the books you've written. And so thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks, Adam. And, I've, you know, we've greatly benefited from the work of your community there in, in Dallas as well. And, and uh, just grateful uh, to be able to have a conversation with you. Looking forward to it. Thanks so much. Well, in that intro, I always ask our, our guests uh, if there's anything about themselves that we should know that, that, that is important, maybe that's not captured by your sort of book bio, if you will. Sure. I, I mean, important facts. I, I, I can't think of many except <laughs> that I'm married to right. Patty and, and she's, uh, she's definitely the better half. We have two daughters, uh, Abigail, who is 24 and recently married and on her way, uh, on their way to New York City, uh, back to the home of her uh, upbringing. And, and then uh, our youngest is uh, Ellie, who is, uh, she is 19 years old and a sophomore at Auburn University and going to uh, work at Pine Cove Camp in Texas for the second summer in a row, which is, I'm sure, familiar to some of your people. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, but I, I love the church. You know, I do write books, but I'm, I'm a pastor who happens to write books and not the other way around. I'm, you know, first and foremost, a, a local church enthusiast and and pastor and member of our wonderful community here in Nashville. So, well, that is, I will say that comes across in your writing. And I think it's, it might be because I also am a pastor, but it benefits me so greatly. You don't write in a way that's cold or distant. You write mm. in a way where you can tell you have something real to offer. And, um, mm. and while it, there's a place for academic writing, I'm not saying there's not, uh, I, I, I feel like I love Jesus more because of your books. So, wow, thank yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact, let's start there. Maybe um, what led you to write "Beautiful People Don't Just Happen"? Why? Why? How did you come to this place? Yeah, I mean, it it was conceived during the pandemic, uh, and uh, that was a season as anyone listening in would remember that was filled with a lot of amplified pain points. You know, these are pain points that weren't caused by the pandemic necessarily, but pain points that everybody has to some degree that I think that season really amplified. And uh, those three pain points that are the focal point of um, of beautiful people don't just happen are regret, uh, you know, the things that we wish we could go back and change, uh, hurt, uh, you know, whether it's, it's, it's hurt that we've brought on ourselves or that we've experienced from some kind of relational betrayal or, or breakdown, or just by being people living in a, living in a fallen world with decaying bodies and, and decaying situations. And then the third pain point is fear. 
or anxiety about the future. And my hope is that the the project, it, it's also a little bit memoirish. I wouldn't call it a memoir, but it's it's probably the most personal uh, book that I've written out of the six. And um, hopefully that will be helpful because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a person who has had his own journey with regret, hurt, and fear. And, and I just, I know I'm really taken in by leaders and, and teachers and, and, you know, especially the likes of the Apostle Paul and King David and others in scripture uh, as well, who, uh, who use their pain points, uh, not as an opportunity to bleed on other people or to dramatize their stories or to, um, you know, make it about them, but, but they have this masterful way. I think the best, most compelling gospel teachers have this masterful way of, of, of being transparent in a way that directs people toward the healing grace of Jesus. Right. Cause I think all of us can find ourselves in each other's stories, right? Yes. You tell me about your regret. You tell me about your hurt or fear, Adam, I'm going to find my story somewhere in there as well. And, and if you take your story to the gospel and, and to Christ and to hope, it, it, it gives me a, an avenue to consider my own story uh, in, in those directions as well. But I think the world is full of a lot of despair, a lot of discouragement, division, uh, disillusionment, loneliness. And, and I'm, I'm hopeful that, that this book will, will be helpful. And I didn't write it for this purpose initially, but, but it ended up being the dedication. Uh, I've actually dedicated the, the book not only to those who suffer these three pain points, but to those who help them, like pastors and counselors. Mm. And it, it ended up being, I, I, I think people who've read it and you know, written endorsements and stuff have called it a, a, a therapeutic kind of book, uh, you know, kind of a gospel therapeutic kind of book. Not that I'm a therapist, but, but, but um, that was honoring to, to hear it put that way because that's, that's what I want. I, I, I want people who just feel, you know, maybe in a place of defeat to, to feel the triumph of Christ and experience the triumph of, of Christ, not in spite of that feeling of defeat, but, but maybe even through it and because of it. Yeah. So that's, that's the hope. Wow. Well, um, I love hearing that because that, that is, that was my experience of reading it. You know, I think, I mean, I mean maybe the term is people in the helping profession, um, but there's a sense in which whether you're talking to, well, taking a step back and then, and then combining this answer, it's like, I wanted to ask you, you, you talk about these three pain points in the book so clearly, regret, hurt, and fear. And you talk about writing in the midst of the pandemic. And there's this sense of, I guess I wanted to ask you what you so clearly in those three pain points describe, I think, this, I don't know, national, worldwide even kind of phenomenon that's happened during the pandemic. If you look at all, I mean, I, I, it's probably trite now to say or wrote or whatever, but it's like if you look during the pandemic – what everybody seems to be talking about now uh, is not only the pandemic, but the mental health crisis that's coming alongside it. If you read church mm -hmm. leadership books and everything else, they're saying, hey, for the next four or five years, we've talked about it on this show before, uh, if you're a church, you need to expect to be taking people into your church who are depressed and anxious. That's It's all the statistics about mental health yeah. right now are really bad, which also means, though, that the people in the helping professions are overwhelmed. Uh, yes. probably under-resourced and going through a bit of that feeling of defeat and fear in themselves. So I think it makes sense that 
you both identified those pain points and then it is also therapeutic for those who are in the helping profession to read about it and and feel as you take us through your own journey to see ourselves in it. Why do you think, you know, the question coming out of that is why do you think what happened? Why why what happened in the pandemic that all of a sudden we were all able to stop? It's not like we weren't afraid we didn't have regrets and we weren't hurt before the pandemic. Certainly that has caused problems, but why is it that we are now almost as a, in a collective way experiencing regret, hurt, and fear, or maybe becoming aware of it? Yeah. I, I mean, I have a theory. I'm sure. not a, soci- I'm not a sure. sociologist, but, <laughs> but um, I, I have a theory and it's more of a theological theory and an anthropological theory. Yeah. It has something to do with, with a curious word that God spoke into paradise where he said it is not good uh, for human beings to be alone. And that was before the fall. And so imagine the potential of the not goodness of, of isolation with the fall, Um, you know, with fear about, you know, the disease with, you know, fear about loss of community, loss of friendship, loss of work, loss of, income and resources and sustainability and, and, and not being able to turn to somebody, not being able to be, you know, held, uh, you know, especially, you know, for those who don't have that loving support of a, you know, of a family, um, you know, as Annie Diller writes, it just threw the whole world out of whack. Mm. It's nothing that any about any of us has ever experienced before where, you know, one week, you know, in our churches, we're saying, Hey, gather, gather, gather. We just started this campaign where we said, look, we we believe that it's best for every Christian to be fully present with the local church every single Sunday of your life, unless you're sick or away. That's that's part of how to rearrange your life in order to have spiritual flourishing. And then the next week, we're telling people it's very, very important that you stay away and not come to church and 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 don't be close to people, you know, and Mm. and and it it was just, it was two years. I mean, we're still, some of us are still in it. Two years of unnatural, two years of dehumanization mm. through the imperative of social distancing, right? Um, you know, one virtue, which is, you know, protecting ourselves and others from this horrible disease contributed to the vice of loneliness and isolation, which then contributed to all kinds of of emotional, spiritual, and mental health crises because that's not the way we're supposed to live. Mm. And, and so I think isolation, you know, you, you, you're, you're, your tribe and my tribe, you know, and maybe your friendships and my friendships overlap with, you know, some leaders who've lost their positions of leadership through yeah. Um, moral failure and some through, you know, the tragedy of self-harm and even, even suicide. Mm. And in every single instance, I've, I've got, I've got seven pastor friends uh, who could de- be described in that way, one way or another, all seven, all seven of them had different stories, but the one thing they all had in common was isolation mm. um, where they had a lot of fans, but, but had lost touch with the notion of having friends and um a lot of praise and likes and follows, but, but no real community. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was chosen. And, you know, that was tragic, right? The, the pandemic, it was forced on us, but a lot of us choose isolation too, just through superficiality and, 
you know, piecing out on people instead of engaging in conflict when conflict happens, which can actually be the most redemptive opportunity to grow up as a human being and learn to love is to mm. see a conflict through uh, yeah. in the ways that Jesus prescribes to do that. Part of how church hopping, I think, destroys real discipleship, for right. instance, but um, which is kind of a peripheral subject here, <laughs> but 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 yeah, man, I I mean, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. You're a pastor that went through it as well, but yeah. I, I think isolation is a huge you know, booger when it comes to, to all kinds of health. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. You know, I, I, it didn't help that in the midst of that, there were kind of overlapping national traumas, if you will, you know, Mm -hmm. of, you know, racism and, and a million other things. Right. And so I think we all sort of were shake our foundations already shaking. And then you have just kind of more reasons to be afraid dumped on top Mm -hmm. of it. And and it just Mm -hmm. all, yeah, it was a dumpster fire, you know, which everybody has said. And, yeah. um, you know, speaking of that, you talked about being a pastor just a second ago. There's so many questions I want to ask. And my mind, if anybody's listened to this for a while, they know I'm not a very linear thinker. I sort of circle and jump from thing to thing. But you've you mentioned memoir and then you, you uh, a minute ago about the book. And then you also just talked about being a pastor during that time. You talked about other pastor friends who either because of the pandemic or probably before the isolation, um, you know, uh, um, that's, that is happening and the effects that that has, um, what it's meant. And I think what I'm getting at here is to say in your book, you were so vulnerable with your own story. Um, you were so vulnerable with your own regrets, hurts, and fears. And, um, on the show, that's something you know, I, I don't want us to just be disembodied voices, you know, just some person you're listening to. So I've talked about my own struggle with anxiety and depression um, a lot uh, uh, mm. on the show. And um, you, you mentioned yours a little bit. So maybe, you, you know, you don't have to talk about the whole book, but um, being a pastor in the midst of the pandemic, all the things that have come before that in your life, is there anything, any piece of vulnerability that you're willing to offer on the show today? And do you mind maybe sharing a little bit about how God mended the brokenness uh, or maybe how it's made you beautiful. Maybe that can kind of be a segue into talking about some of the categories and definitions that we, we hear in the book. So, yeah. Uh, Well, you know, I, I I won't belabor the point on my own experience with anxiety and depression because I've, I've, I've got that, you know, I've I've written about it. There's, There's a whole section in the book about it, like you said. Um, But there's, there's one thing that I didn't elaborate much on, but I did mention it, and and I think probably a lot of you know people that are listening, um, it's part of their story as well. And that is that you know I, I just turned the corner on fifty not long ago, and um, you know started seeing this counselor. Not the first time in my life, I've, you know I've benefited greatly from good counselors over the years. But you know entered a kind of an intensive season of of counseling to just work through some family of origin stuff and, and work through, you know, the question of, you know, how do my wife and I, you know, finish well, if, you know, if we've got 20 more years left of meaningful, you know, energetic ministry, you know, how can we do that well and healthy? And, and, you know, before too long, it, it, it led to um, kind of a deep dive into my childhood as often as the case in counseling and, and and he unearthed the, the the guy that I work with unearthed uh, some some trauma and some abuse mm. in 
my background that I had um, kind of buried. And, um, and so that led to, you know, this, this treatment called EMDR, which is a, which is a, you know, trauma targeted treatment, um, which I've, I've found to be greatly beneficial, but um, I would say this, you know, the, the, the book is kind of, it's based on a quote by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross um, where, you know, this is just a paraphrase, but she says the, the most beautiful people that we've known have known defeat, known suffering, known disappointment, have known defeat and have found their way out of those depths. And, and the last, you know, sentence of her quote, which, which is the, you know, <laughs> made for a great title for this book, she said, beautiful people do not just happen. Um, in other words, we're formed. Uh, and, and she's speaking from a non-Christian perspective. And, and yet, you know, I think every human being resonates with the notion that suffering can either make you or break you. It can either, you know, you know, solidify, you know, you know, the 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 golem in you or the or the Frodo in you, to mm. use a Lord of the Rings metaphor but i i do think that 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 those past traumas have you know to your question uh made me more of a protector mm. uh, than than i would have been otherwise to those who experience um you know bullying or unfair treatment or some form of injustice um i'm i'm uh i'm always a put me in coach kind of person when there is a fight to be had in the protection of vulnerable parties, um, you know, kind of in the spirit of where C.S. Lewis says, you know, Christianity is a fighting religion. It, it sees the wrongs and the injustices in the world, and it, it seeks to do something about it. Mm. I think having those kinds of things done to me when I was in a very weak, indefensible position um, makes me extra zealous to make a contribution to a, a more just and fair world. Um, and the other thing is that um, I, I feel very deeply um, mm. a, a visceral level of sympathy and empathy uh, for for those who are down and out, you know, for the underdogs, for those who know they're unfinished, you know, for the bleeding woman on the ground, you know, looking just to touch the hem of Jesus's garment. I, I like to help her get to Jesus, you know, mm -hmm. like like. Mm -hmm. I'm very, very motivated by people who are in the ditch. I'm very attracted to, even though I've never been, um, you know, in recovery myself, I'm very attracted to like AA meetings and, and, you know, celebrate recovery and, yeah. and, you know, sexaholics anonymous, like any chance I get to peek into those communities or, or just sit and listen uh, to people talk about their own redemptive process of being brought out of the ditch, or maybe they're just in the process or just getting started or just considering whether or not to get started with the process of healing. I'm, I'm very motivated to be in those spaces. And I, and I think that traces back to my trauma. Yeah. Um, Cause otherwise I was kind of a superficial kid growing up. And yeah. so uh, I shudder to think how superficial I, I would be having not suffered uh, in any way. Thank you for sharing that with our listeners. And I know, again, I know that'll really, resonate with a lot of people. It's resonating with me. And, um, I, I just want to say like the, the vision you painted, even just there talking about something that's deeply harmful, deeply, uh, traumatizing, you paint such a hopeful picture 
and um, you paint a hopeful picture in the book. Um, I, I agree that I think people resonate with the idea that that suffering shapes you. You know, you, it can it can sink you or it can make you into something beautiful, like you talk about. Um, but it does seem to be on a, on a wider scale. I, I just feel like this is a message that you're writing about in this book that is so important because maybe on a on another level, you know, it seems like there's this we are moving in a direction societally, if you're paying attention, I think, you know, and as a, as a show that's trying to look at culture, we're trying to diagnose, you know, you can always be off in these things, but it feels like culturally, you know, we're, we're moving in a, in a direction that says we need to avoid pain. We need to, uh, your suffering is something that's, uh, you know, in a meaningless world, suffering is meaningless in a, you know, it just happens arbitrarily and it's something that you need to kind of like work through and then put away or whatever it might be, right? It's just mm-hmm. this very, um, well, you know, you want to avoid pain and any pain you do have, you can't, you don't really want to assign meaning to it. It's more, it needs to be therapized and put away. And mm-hmm. I think what your, the the picture you offer that, no, it's it's our suffering that can make us beautiful, uh, man, how I need, I need that message. And I, I think it's, it's the gospel message. I, 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 but it's just said in such a beautiful way. We, we have like some distinctives in our church, you know, everybody has their kind of whatever their, their core beliefs and then maybe distinctives. And we communicate those to our members. And one of them is the sovereignty of God and salvation, but, and suffering. And as we were developing our church, we really wanted to talk about that, that there's, you know, the trite way of saying it is that there's purpose in your suffering, but I think the what I loved about your book is it helped me put words to that idea that God's sovereign over our suffering. Could you talk maybe just a little bit more about that idea using your own words that God, that it's formative that, that you were kind of saying there? Yeah. I mean, you know, you said two really important things there, Adam. One is God is sovereign over it. Yeah. There's nothing that happens um, without God's authorization. That doesn't mean that God enjoys it. But he authorizes it, mm. um, and and that's a hard that's a hard thought for some, but it but it's hard to get away from biblically and theologically that for his own purposes, you know, often mysterious to us, he authorizes our joys and he authorizes our sorrows uh, for what the scriptures call a greater good. Give a couple of of examples. One would be. Joseph, uh, right, in the book of Genesis, who's sold into slavery by his brothers. Uh, He is falsely accused of um, sexual misconduct by a woman who actually was trying to solicit him. And then he was tossed into prison for that. And you know, as as you and probably most of your listeners know, the story, you know, unfolds and he God ends up elevating him eventually to, to essentially the position of prime minister in Egypt and his, his brothers uh, who once, you know, treated him so poorly uh, are now seeking asylum in a famine. And Joseph has the power to either destroy them or to help them. And he decides to help them. And when it's discovered that by the brothers that it's Joseph, his answer is what you meant for evil, God intended for good for mm-hmm. the saving of many lives. So that's one example. Another example is the Apostle Paul, of course, in his famous thorn in the flesh um, passage in, uh, I believe it's 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, where, get the language here. Uh, You know the language, Adam. A messenger of Satan 
was given to me. Um, so the word given there is the same Greek word that we get the word grace from. So, so, so it says that literally, it quite literally says that an, a messenger of Satan, this thorn in the flesh, whatever it was, was graced to me. This messenger of Satan was graced to me, and I pleaded with the Lord, which, which means God had complete jurisdiction over the thing, that God authorized it. I pleaded three times with the Lord to remove it from me, and he said, my grace is sufficient for you. And, and of course, you know, he, 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 un, he unpacks it. He interprets his situation and says, God authorized this in order to keep me from becoming conceited. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a character virtue that God determined was of greater importance than my comfort. And he was even willing to use the forces of evil or, or allow the forces of evil to, to do their work with this thorn in order to drive me to him, because the alternative is terrible. <laughs> to, 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 to plead mercy from Satan uh, is only to make things worse for yourself, right? Mm-hmm. But he, you know, he talks in Romans five about how we rejoice in suffering, not 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 over our suffering or for our suffering, but we, we rejoice while we're in it. He says because suffering produces, you know, these these attributes: perseverance, character, and hope. And hope does not disappoint. And the love of God is poured out in our hearts in Christ Jesus. And so, um, all of this is pointing to that that wonderfully disturbing um, verse in the Bible, Romans eight twenty eight, which is probably the second most known verse in the Bible, second only to John 3.16, where it says, God works all things together for good mm-hmm. for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And I personally, I think the key word there is together. It doesn't say he works all things for good, because there, there are actually some things that are really crummy and, and that are not good that are introduced into our lives, you know, disease, death, suffering, you know, conflict, whatever. But it says that God takes all, all of the ingredients of our lives and he mixes them together. And out comes something good. And so in the book, I talk a little bit about my favorite bread, which is banana bread, which is really cake. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you, you know, if you read that section, you'll remember that. So the, the key, what's the key ingredient to banana bread? Do you remember? It's it's the rotten banana, right? Rotten banana. The right. keyword being rotten. Yeah, right. If you just put a ripe right. banana in there that, that's right. not rotten, it, it'll ruin right. the outcome. It has to be a rotten banana. Yep. And so you know, you, you, you mix that in with the sugar and the butter and the salt and all the other stuff, the flour, and you put, you, you apply the heat to it. That's good. Uh, and out comes just something moist and delicious and all, you know, near perfect for the taste buds. And, and it wouldn't be what it is mm. were the rotten fruit, not one of the essential, the essential ingredient. And, and so I think there's something in there that that explains to us the pattern of history and the way the universe works, because you know Christ's greatest work was through a rotten betrayal, uh, not only by people who hated him but by people who loved him. All of his disciples fled. It wasn't just Peter; it was all of his disciples that abandoned him. It says, and 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 that was rotten. And the cross was rotten, being buried from the first day to the third day was rotten. Uh, and yet it was through all of that, that, that God has healed the world mm-hmm. and given hope for redemption and renewal. And, and so, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's probably more than you asked for, but, no. but 
Um, I, I, I just wonder if the Christian imagination, especially in the American West with all of our suburban comforts, you know, that lead us to think that suffering is of no value and can be of no purpose and, and can have no redemption in it, right? We run from it like the plague. We deny the existence of death until we have to face it. I don't know. I just love the, I love the philosophy of Ecclesiastes writer, mm-hmm. right? Who, you know, he finds a lot of misery in all the pleasures and luxuries that the world has to offer. He finds a lot of misery and emptiness in that. And his conclusion is, you know, I think I could have avoided all this unhappiness had I just mm-hmm. remembered my creator in the days that I was young, you know, to start <laughs> early, you know, orienting my heart around the sovereignty and mystery and goodness of God. Mm. Um and learning from a very early age uh, to receive, uh, you know, David writes it in the Psalms. It, it is it is good for the man to bear the yoke of suffering while he is young, mm-hmm. or maybe that was Isaiah. I can't remember, but but you know, there's just something about what God might be up to. Mm-hmm. And and the beautiful thing about Scripture too is we 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 can do two simultaneous things. We can rejoice in our suffering and resist it at the same time, mm. right? Like Jesus got angry and he wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus mm-hmm. while also preaching hope. And, and while also saying to Mary and Martha before they had any notion of what he was about to do, um, you know, I am the resurrection and the life, you know? And, 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 and so, you know, I think even there, or even on the cross where it says for the joy set before him, Jesus endured. So, yeah. so yeah, I could go on about that. No, I love it. I mean, I, I want to talk about the how a little bit more. I, I think mm-hmm. you've named the where. Where is it in the Bible? I want to talk about the how, but I just want to, maybe it's, you know, just to say the um, the parallel. Mm-hmm. I'm laughing because there are two other things I really wanted to do was talk about some of the beautiful, really beautiful parts, the deep, beautiful parts of your book, and the, the rotten banana was one. So we got okay. to it earlier, but I love that. But I have some other quotes. But the yeah. second thing was just to say, you know, we're it's interesting. We're kind of in a series of wisdom books right now, Proverbs and both Ecclesiastes. We just we were just in. But one of the things we've talked about from Proverbs, one of the things we were talking about is just the wounded. What is it? What's you know, there's these categories in Proverbs, and one we see is wounded, probably stealing from S-Wine a little bit and all of that. But um, in that, Mm -hmm. um, as we're we're looking, one of the things we said is that uh, there was this word picture that our main teacher uh, here was talking about, his name's Jamin, and he talked about these these flowers in his his garden, and something had happened to one of them, and it kind of, the plant was sort of dying or got trampled on, and it was sort of laying down after it got trampled on. And for him, he, he, he's sort of an outdoorsy guy. He started to really care for this one piece of this flower that was laying down. And as he's caring for it, um, he, he starts kind of paying more attention to it. He's paying more and more attention to this flower. Mm-hmm. And over time, somehow this, the other flowers lost a little bit of importance isn't the right word, but maybe some of their beauty. And the one that was lying down was bent in such a way, distorted in such a way that it almost became more beautiful. And so the language we're using around here is, you know, suffering's going to happen to all of us. How do we learn to bloom lying down? What does it Mm. look like to bloom lying down? And I thought your book tells us that, you know, it's that mm. idea of, you You mention in this one paragraph, you talk about all the ways people have been hurt throughout the scripture, or they're hurting or suffering, and and yet it is the hurting and the suffering that actually ends up, it's the quote that you have from the beginning, but it's the, it is, it's the suffering itself that makes them 
become more beautiful. The way I've talked about it is like, man, I used to say, you know, who do I, what do I want to become? I kind of just want to become a sage, you know, I want to be the type of person that offers wisdom and can, um, I don't know, can speak those confrontational but loving words and all those kind of things. And it's like the only way I think you become that, I think, uh, is through suffering, you know, or at mm-hmm. least the people I admire most are the ones who've suffered. And so my, I guess that's my next question to go along with. But what's the process of getting there look like? Because it's you just mentioned it a little bit. I think this idea of saying it's not re- – it's not um, – embracing the pain in sort of a masochistic way. It's mm-hmm. not uh, denying the pain of it. We don't go, oh, great, we're suffering again. It's going to be really, uh, everything's cool, right. thumbs up. There's some sort of tension. There's some sort of holding it and and facing it and walking through it and having hope in it. Could you talk a little mm-hmm. bit about that? Maybe I'll just illustrate it. Yeah. Um, so I've known, I've known Tim Keller personally for almost 16 years now. Mm. And, you know, as you may know, he has, he has, uh, incurable cancer, yeah. pancreatic, which is, is not the prognosis that anybody, or, or the, not the diagnosis anybody wants or the prognosis. Right. He's, he's actually beat the odds significantly, um, you know, by, you know, still being with us and still being engaged, being engaged in the way that he is. But, um, you know, the last zoom call I had with him, there was like a chemo, device in his arm and he was just kind of flipping flippantly joking about how expensive the thing was right so you know here here's a guy that's got this this remarkable lightness of being given the situation and he you know he's fully engaged he's still you know mentoring younger leaders he's still trying to get more churches planted around the world you know he's still staying engaged mm-hmm. even from his apartment through zoom uh, and, you know, here's a guy who at one point in his ministry became the only pastor to ever make it onto the Forbes top 50 most influential people in the world That's list. Incredible. And he never cared about stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know, like he just, he would just kind of brush it off. If, if, if he even made mention of it, he'd be like, okay, what else do you want to talk about? And, mm. um, you know, but the, the one thing that he's consistently saying now in conversations privately and publicly is that this season is the happiest season of his life. Mm. Um, you know, as he, you know, prepares to, to face the end and, um, you know, he says that, 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 you know, there are a few things that he's trying to, you know, be especially focused on. One is to focus, one is to know the Lord so that he'll be fully prepared for the day when it comes, uh, to work on his marriage. He's in his mid seventies and he still wants to work on his marriage, uh, to be with his kids and grandkids as much as he can, to keep writing, uh, and the way he puts it is to leave messages in the bottle for the future church, and then he wants to be an encourager. But and 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 you know, to me, that's a picture of beauty that somebody in those circumstances talk about blooming while you're on the ground. Mm. Um, but I think about his life and what got him there, and what prepared him for that. It's not that he was a great pe- preacher or that he succeeded as a minister in New York or you know, succeeded at, you know, building a, you know, global support system for, for church planting in major <laughs> cities and, or that he wrote great books or he's a great preacher. Like, even though all that's true and wonderful, what got him ready? Um, are you ready for the, the secret? Uh, was reading, praying through the Psalm, through five Psalms every single day for over 60 years, 
reading through the whole Bible every single year for over 60 years, mm. having a deep, um, committed, focused moment or time or season of prayer every single day, uh, and receiving criticism uh, with the goal of learning. Mm. Uh, and the goal of being further sanctified, even if the criticism is unfair, uh, you know, he'll even say of unfair criticism, is there, is there a kernel of truth in there? Uh, even if the whole thing is unfair, is there a kernel of truth in there that I can learn from, uh, that could become an occasion to repent, which would become an occasion to draw closer to Christ? Um, you know, I, I've never heard him, I've never heard him, you know, speak a negative word behind somebody's back or to somebody's face, like, like a shaming or, mm. you know, slanderous word, like never. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, that kind of stuff, it happens in the daily boring stuff, right? Mm -hmm. um, our, our worship director, who's got a, 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 an autoimmune disease, and he's spoken very publicly about it. It's his liver doesn't regenerate. Mm. It's a guy named Nathan Tasker. And we're talking about formation and, and just, kind of worship service philosophy and all of that one day. And, and he says, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm all for like those, those big moments in worship, but he says, I don't think that's what forms people mm -hmm. any more than the, the big memorable meals form us, you know, to be healthy. Right. And he, and he says, how many, how many meals, Scott, do you, do you think you would, how many meals from your lifetime do you actually remember? And I said, oh, maybe about 15. <laughs> he said, how many of them were healthy? And I said, probably none of them. Uh, and, and, um, and he said, what would your life be like if those mountaintop meal experiences were the only meals that you ever had? Or if you had a meal like that, every single meal? I, I, I said, you know, I, they wouldn't be, feel spectacular to me anymore. And I'd be really fat or I wouldn't exist anymore. <laughs> uh, and, and, and his whole point is that, that what, what makes us healthy and what sustains us is, is the daily, mundane, ordinary, sometimes boring, you know, stuff that doesn't taste delicious, like Leviticus, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> like mm -hmm. I'm at Leviticus. I'm going <laughs> to make it through because by faith, because God's word says that it's all his and it won't return void. And so I'm going to slog through those genealogies. I'm going to slog through, you know, the so-and-so begat so-and-sos as well as, you know, Romans eight. Uh, and, and so I, I think just learning to value, um, the ordinary access that God gives to what we call the means of grace of the mm -hmm. word of God, the sacraments, the prayers and the local church. Yeah. Um, you know, these are the things just that we, if we repetitively submit ourselves to them and repetitively, repetitively and rhythmically expose ourselves to them over a period of decades, we've got a really good chance of, of uh, blooming while we're on the ground to use your language. Yeah. I love that. I think I, you know, I mean, that, that is, you presented in the book, you talk about the importance of habit. You talk about the importance of what, which, which kind of habits those are. You just talked about them there with, with Keller. Um, but it, it sounds like sort of what you're saying is if you want to deal with regret, if you, or if you want to be prepared for regret, if you want to be prepared for hurt, if you want to be prepared for, for fear and healed from them, then there is something the work is actually really ordinary. And you said something else too there a minute ago, you said over decades. So it's the work's sort of ordinary. It's not sexy, 
um, in, in, a, in a sort of worldly sense. Mm. Uh, it's reading the Bible. It's praying through the Psalms. It's bringing your hurts to the Lord. It's, it's all the things you've talked about. You mentioned counseling. So there's some form of introspection and, you know, submitting those things to the Lord. Yeah. And then it's... And working it out in community, ex- you know, right. to, to, to voice it, right? Like right. Bonhoeffer says, the word of Christ on my brother's lips is stronger than the word of Christ on my heart, mm. right? Like there's, there's some, you know, the Colossians talks about how we sing, not just to God, but to one another, Amen. Uh, you know, yep. the Psalms and the hymns and the spiritual songs. So yeah. yeah, verbalizing what's on the inside, you know, solidify, has a solidifying effect. I well. love it. Yeah. That's beautiful. Well, uh, let me bring it home uh, because I do want to respect your time. But one thing I, you, your books, you have a way of saying things beautifully, or it just captures me. I, I think about, I've read several of your books now, Gentle Answer, Befriend. Uh, there was another one in there, uh, From Weakness to Strength. And then it's true again of people, beautiful people don't just happen. I just end up underlining or like, I don't, I just try to like, I don't know how to, I, it's like this, I need a, a place to collect all of these beautiful things you say. And I could just find a few of them really quick, but it's that um, there's a sense of a weight uh, put succinctly that just captures me. So I, I have two questions from it, but the first is, I just want to read a couple of them. Uh, and they're the first few I could find it really quickly. So they're, they're happening mm-hmm. towards the beginning of the book. But one, you say, it is a grievous thing to hate a child whom God cannot stop loving. I mm-hmm. That is just so powerful. And you're talking about person who had self-hatred and, you, that's, right. and that's what you say to him. Another one that is just... And incredible. Sometimes the deepest, truest faith feels more like defeat than it does victory. Gosh, I'm like, again, I just, it's like a Selah moment. I don't mean to be, you know, use Christianese, but I'm just like, you know, it's these, there are these moments throughout the book, which is why I'm commending it to the listener where you need to just stop maybe and just take a minute. And then right in the beginning, I underline this. I like, just like, I don't know. I tried to like claw marks in it. So I know to turn to it, but maybe, maybe this is sort of a a thesis sentence of the book, but you just said the shaming voice of regret can be silenced with a counter voice of divine, divine forgiveness and grace. The dehumanizing voice of hurt can be silenced with a counter voice of divine compassion and presence. And the immobilizing voice of fear can be silenced with a divine counter voice of a savior who will never leave us, a love that will not let us go, and future promises that will never let us down. When you think through the book and your writing, maybe what are you, this this is maybe more of a personal question, but what are you most proud of uh, in there? And then um, what... Any last thing you think we need to know? I'm especially thinking of that last that that last one. But um, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I think what I'm most proud of is my um, <laughs> my very unique instinct mm. uh, to have one chapter with uh, I think 17 prologues. I love uh, I and, love that prologue and, idea. and, and call oh, it that. Yes. Uh, so. I'm pretty proud of myself for that. Um, <laughs> Tell, what's <laughs> no. the idea there? Because you explain it in the book, but they're, well, they're I mean, it originates it originates with C.S. Lewis. Right. There's this statement, you know, after Aslan has come back from the dead, and Narnia is, you know, it's like this everlasting springtime in Narnia, and you know, C.S. Lewis just beautifully talks about how you know those in Narnia are getting a sense that all the lives that they had lived before this moment were all 
prologue mm. and, and that their true life was just beginning. Uh, I'm actually getting chills now when I paraphrase phrase Lewis like mm. that. Mm-hmm. Um, but really what I want people to leave with is what the, what chapter one and only says. Mm-hmm. And, and essentially um, not to give it away, but I'll give it away because mm. it's already been given away by the Lord mm. for every single Christian, no matter how hard it gets, um, no matter how low to the ground we feel on any given day or in any given season, no matter how over it feels like uh, our our best days are, our best days are always yet to come. And for every Christian, the long-term worst case scenario is resurrection and everlasting mm. life. It will not get any worse than that. And, and, um, and so there's always hope. And, and, uh, you know, that's what I hope, that's what I hope people leave with, uh, you know, with the book is a sense of having some more well-anchored hope around these, especially these three pain points. That was beautiful. And I think that's the right place to end. So thank you, Scott. Thank you so much for taking the time. And um, please pick up the book. Beautiful people don't just happen. Thank you for listening to Culture Matters. This podcast is made possible because of a team of people behind the scenes. Chris Starrett, Chelsea Conway, Mandy Page, and Brad Weigel. We couldn't do it without them. If you're a follower of the podcast, we'd love to hear from you. You can message us on social. You can also support us on our Patreon page. Check the show notes for more information and see you next time. Bye.